chief national concerns. The title I've given to the lesson this evening will direct our attention to the concerns of a nation. And at the very outset, surely that could well be a very lengthy and large list. It might well encompass many particulars and many, many things. It is the case, isn't it, that we have embarked, come to another one of those seasons that we well recognize. The opportunity that's ours to cast votes and the opportunity that's ours to put into office individuals that you and I cast votes for. And surely, as we consider what that involves and the responsibility that goes with it, I might be quick to say this lesson is not to tout or at least to lift high a particular party. It is to rather to open the Word of God and allow some principles, some particulars of that sacred text to guide us in the matters concerning wisdom when it comes to chief national concerns. For that reason, we'll be looking at a number of Old Testament passages, but also some New Testament ones as well. This opening slide, this introductory one, will point us in this initial direction. Greg will have me assist me as I turn these slides apparently tonight. Isn't it true that the Word of God itself proclaims that God always does what is right, without fail and without any exception? In Genesis 18:25, in the long ago, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It was a rhetorical question, obviously insinuating the fact that he always does. Later in Ezra 9.15, that amazing scribe who served God in such difficult circumstances, he too made the statement, Our God in righteousness always does that which is proper, always doing that which is right. That certainly is true not only in regards to individual lives, but also national concerns. The Bible declares, furthermore, that God is in supreme control. Three times in Daniel chapter 4, we have the amazing and rather touching statement that the God of heaven, the one who overrules all things, it is He that rules in the kingdoms of men. Did you note the plural word kingdoms? It is God that rules in the nations of men. Now it's true that governments and nationalities and peoples can make choices to do things that are rather abominable and do things that are wholly inconsistent with the things of God. But our God takes note of that which is done. And there shall come a time when, in fact, He will dispense judgment relative to that which was, in fact, done. About the middle of that slide, I've asked you to notice the quotation taken directly from Daniel chapter 4. The Most High ruleth, and giveth it to whomsoever He will. Now, would you take note with me that God thus can elevate and put into place offices and national strength and vitality, but He can also remove it. He can remove the wherewithal of a given nation and turn it over to somebody else. He did that often in the Old Testament, didn't He? As you and I close that slide and prompt ourselves ready to launch into the fullness, if you please, of the lesson... It is true that nations themselves occupy a tremendous place of responsibility. Governmental authority is bequeathed by God. Jesus Himself looked Pilate directly in the face and said, Thou would have no power except God gave it to you. We read that in John chapter 19. 
And yet, if God gave Pilate that power, we know Pilate didn't always do what he should. But he was in a position of authority, and in that position, God expected certain things of him. And he will have to give answer in judgment for failures in terms of all what those may have been. Tonight, as we then look at chief national concerns, I'd like to mention as we make ready for the reality of ancient Israel, that we're going to use the children of Israel as an initial reminder of what it is we're discussing this evening, and then we will launch into a more immediate application for us. Ancient Israel, we know so well the overarching story. Here was a group of people. They themselves were slaves in Egypt. And at that time, the nation of Egypt was the mightiest nation on earth, bar none. They were strong. They were mighty. They had all the things that they had at that point that prevented the other nations from overwhelming them. And the children of Israel were slaves to them. In point of time, you and I remember, however, that God brought plagues on the nation of Egypt. And ultimately, they thrust out the Israelites and in fact urged them to leave. At the scene of the Red Sea, Israel was, of course, fully removed from the power of the Egyptians at that time. In the wake of the great events of God, the Egyptians had been put to death. They were left drowned in the Red Sea, and Israel, God's people, had been freed. Did you notice? God brought them out of bondage. And not only that, they embarked on a wandering in the wilderness, a place where there was a dearth of food at least in natural ways. There was a dearth in water, at least in natural ways. They were wandering in a wilderness by and large, a desolate place. Not only that, their clothing didn't wear out. All those years, their shoes didn't wear out, the clothes didn't wear out. Six days a week, they could go pick up the groceries off the ground. God provided them everything they needed. He saw to it that as they sojourned throughout that desolate place, all the while He kept before them a fertile land to which they were going. That place we call Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And although they sinned along the way and made their journey longer than it needed to have been, they finally did arrive. At the top of that slide, I would invite you to remember, that land of Canaan was fully occupied when Israel got there. But God threw all those nations out. He gave Israel the admonition, You, in fact, I will be with you, but you cast them out. You defeat them. You remove them. You take their lives by and large. Israel did that somewhat, but not nearly fully. But could we at least pause at this point and say, The children of Israel were given land. They were given their government. They were given the entire identity of their existence. Everything was subsumed beneath their allegiance to God. At this point, notice, land, as wonderful as it was, God gave it to them. Their government style and all that went with it, God gave it to them. Their system of national identity, God gave it to them. And that identity was to be sufficient for them. And in their allegiance to God, they would always have everything they needed. They were promised a number of things about God being with them. And as long as they were faithful, they would be able to be victorious. 
You'll notice about the middle of that slide, but of course God made some demands of them. He did bless them with these things, but He demanded that they selflessly and with devotion honor and serve Him always. He was to be such that there was no gods before Him, and He was to be such that they were to love Him with all of their being. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. You may notice then, you're the bottom of that slide, there were times that we do read about Israel faithfully following God. They did so in the days of Joshua. They were faithful, they were committed to His ways, and all the life of Joshua, and even those that lived beyond him, things were good. They occupied that sweet land of Canaan. But we also read many times they weren't so dedicated to God. They chose to go their own way. They chose to behave in various ways not consistent with what God had said. I would invite you to note then the last thing. We do read about a number of crises in the Old Testament. That is to say, particular times in which things were so terrible and things were in such a moment of decision that a great deal lay in the balance. What about some of those moments of crisis? I might suggest that again in our nation, it'll be our desire to make application at least of the ideas. And as we do that, let's look first of all at the following. A crisis in prophecy. Now as you and I reflect upon the crisis in prophecy, we'll do so recognizing this. Remember, God rules in the kingdoms of men and He elevates and gives it to whomsoever He will. Let's start our journey in Genesis 15. When it comes to the nations, what about the land belonging to the Amorite peoples? You'll notice one of the first things of which we read concerning them, almost from the very beginning of our introduction to them in the Bible, God had something very interesting, very telling, and rather compelling to say about them. In speaking to Abraham, God had these words to say, Beginning in verse number 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. You and I know, of course, from history what that was. This particular land that they were going to be in at that time was the Egyptian land. They're going to serve these people a long time, hundreds of years. But verse 14 says, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. God said, I'm going to judge those Egyptians. I put in the nation to which it referred, but He said, My people are going to come out with great substance. And so they did. Verse 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they, that's the very ones that have just come out of Egypt, in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And so God revealed to Abraham hundreds of years before it was to occur, your people are going to serve in a land, and they're going to serve in a very difficult situation, but they're going to come out, and they're going to move toward a place and in verse number 16, he describes they're going to occupy some territory. This land currently, and the land that at that time shall be inhabited by the Amorites, your people are going to inhabit it. 
Isn't that interesting? Did you notice God thus asserted here these Amorite peoples? No doubt they were loving where they were living. They were enjoying a very fertile place, a land that met their needs and satisfied the circumstances of their existence. But God says, I'm going to take it from them. And I'm going to give it to your descendants, Abraham. And did you notice he mentioned one other thing? He said the iniquity of the Amorites. There was something for which the Amorites was known. There was something characteristic of their life and their way and the disposition of their existence. They were known for iniquity. You might appreciate that in the years prior to this, no doubt there was some degree of iniquity, some degree of evil and some degree of sinfulness in the character of the Amorites. But this verse says it's not yet full. It's not yet full. In other words, apparently there's an ascendancy to that which this evil is going to be. It's going to increase and become worse as the years go by. And it shall reach a zenith. It will reach its heightened peak, if you please. And Abraham, in that fourth generation, when your people are ready for it, that iniquity will have reached its highest. And it's at that point, I'm going to remove the land from them and I'm going to give it to your descendants. But one more time, as God rules in the kingdoms of men, do we not notice He made reference, did He not, to the iniquity of the Amorites? But that isn't the last we shall hear of this. I would ask you to notice, in, Genesis, or rather in Deuteronomy 9, you'll notice that was the very chapter that was read in our hearing a moment ago. But could I point out verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 9, and listen to the further development of this. Now, we are hundreds of years removed from what God had told Abraham, but listen to the interesting way this is put. As God spoke to Moses, here He said, "...not for thy righteousness," meaning that of the children of Israel, "...not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land." That's the Amorite land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Some of those additional comments are so intriguing, aren't they? Hundreds of years earlier, God had revealed to Abraham these Amorites, the cup of their iniquity, as it ascends in its evil, it isn't yet full. But by that time, you'll now hear God say to Moses, in regard to Israel, I can't say you're the most faithful people ever, but here's what's happening. I'm going to cast those people, those Amorite peoples, out of that land because of their wickedness. The cup is now full. The iniquity has reached the point where I'll tolerate it no longer. I'll cast them out. And the land shall be Moses, these people of Israel's. Now that's a very telling consideration, isn't it? That God, in fact, is aware of and mindful of and keenly understanding of the heart and disposition of a people. And He decides who He shall give it to and He decides who He shall take it from. In this Old Testament way, we then notice Deuteronomy 9 has spoken volumes. 
God didn't just simply give the children of Israel that land because how faithful they were. He said, that's not the case at all. You've got your better moments to be sure, but the reason that you're getting this land is their cup of iniquity is full. I'm casting them out. You'll notice about the bottom of that slide. What about the parallel that you and I can then ask? Well, what was the most important thing to the Amorite peoples? Those that inhabited that sweet and fertile and that land known as the land of milk and honey. No doubt they lived day to day understanding in their better moments how well they had it. Quite often the lands very near to them were desert. They were lands that were not nearly as providing as that land was. Did they take it for granted? One thing we know for sure, they were known for their sin. They were known for their iniquity. They were known for their wickedness. And God said, that's the reason I'm taking the land from them. What about our day? Isn't it easy in a land as blessed as we are to perhaps give thought to the mundane things of life? My table is full. I've got a closet full of clothes, and I've got all the cars I care anything about. And so it is that as we perhaps think about only material things, did you notice there was a more important matter to the Amorites? Not to say education and other things were wholly unimportant, but by far the thing most significant was their morality. That's what God was going to judge them for. And that's why He cast them out of the land. Us today... What about our national morality? Are we given to and focused on that which God approves? Are we as a nation standing right behind and fully directive of the things that God says, I approve that? Or on the other hand, are we more interested as a people in things of a materialistic matter, ways of life, whether it has anything to do with godliness or not? The population of our country, the United States of America, is somewhat over 300 million people. And we know that's a lot of people with a lot of decisions and a lot of concerns in life. But make no mistake about it. When it came to the Amorites, by far that which was most significant was matters of a moral character. For that's ultimately what cost them the land. That's ultimately what caused them to lose the enjoyment of what they once had had. For that reason, the parallel to our day is rather evident, isn't it? We too need to lift high the banner of moral matters and ethical characteristics and truth as God has identified it. Because that's what leads to national strength. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is of reproach to any people to borrow the wording of Proverbs 14.34. So there, again, hundreds of years even later than this, it was through Solomon that God made the observation, righteousness, doing what's right, appreciating what's right, standing for what's right. That's what will exalt a nation. That's what will make it stronger, better, more noteworthy. And that's what will lead, of course, to a greater sense of benefit for all, for everything that's ultimately good. Is it any wonder, as we close that slide, that just as it was for the Amorite nations, and so it will remain for all nations today, with, with great blessing comes responsibility. 
And God will take note of how that responsibility is shirked or how it is ignored, how it is, in essence, given little consideration. The Amorites, you'll notice it took some time. But finally, God had tolerated it all that He would. It was going to be tolerated no longer. So far, that issue has surrounded the Amorite nation. But we know those weren't God's people. They weren't the ones that God had led out of Egypt, and they weren't the ones He gave the law of Moses to, and they weren't the ones that held out the hope some of the greatest promises of the Old Testament. Maybe for that reason, I wonder what could be said about the people of Israel. What about God's chosen people? Would you turn a few books forward in the Old Testament? Let's look at 2 Kings for just a moment. In the reign of a king known as Manasseh, we come face to face with a set of characteristics and a set of ideas that will again be rather compelling. We'll read a few verses around chapter 21. That's 2 Kings, the 21st chapter. It was at that time that there was a king named, as you can see on the slide, Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the longest reigning kings that Judah ever had. Reigned 55 years, and therefore during a rather lengthy reign, he had the opportunity to influence many things and direct many occurrences and to put in place a set of ideals. And may I be quick to say that for much of the early part of his reign, he did not make wise choices. He often directed God's people in ways that were rather wicked. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and reigned fifty and five years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. After the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. You'll note with me then that some of the initial comments made point us to this. Here was a king, a civil leader, one who occupied a position of great authority, one who could make decisions, put in place various regulations, statutes, and laws, and one who had the absolute right to reign in many of the ways in the lives of the people of Israel. And yet you noticed in verse number 2, he did what was evil. I wonder what he did. What was evil about his actions and what was evil about his decisions? Later in that chapter, we are given a few details. Let me select a few of the verses. Let's reflect upon them. It says, For he, this is verse 3, built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. His daddy, King Hezekiah, had given at least a fair interest in upholding the things of truth and the matters of God, and yet his son, Manasseh, tore them down. He wasn't much like his daddy, at least at that point in his life. It says, He reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So surely some of the errors that were in the reign of Hezekiah or in the reign of Manasseh were prompted by his false religion and the ideas that surrounded it. Isn't it interesting that he built false places of worship? He authorized various activities connected with what God never approved. That's not all. 
Let's read forward in the chapter. Verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Did you notice? He desecrated places of worship. The very place wherein God had placed His name. The very place in which the faithful worship and service of God was to take place. This guy built false altars right there in the middle, if you please, of the church building. See, he desecrated the very places, what was noble and what was godly and what was appropriate. He not only gave it no attention, he gave it special effort to tear it down. Let's read on. Verse number 5. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. One more time, this temple that had been constructed, he in fact took the liberty of actually endorsing behaviors right there in the temple, which were wholly disapproved and against what God long ago had asserted was to take place there. This gentleman had no concern for truth at that point in his life. He had no interest in upholding what was right. Let's read on. He made his son, verse 6, to pass through the fire, and observed times, and used enchantments, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He, sought mu- he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even sacrificed his son to these false gods. And not only that, he gave interest in wizards and witches and stuff like this. You can see a mixed up man, and yet he was king. What a tremendous amount of influence he did have and how much direction he moved people then aside from truth. Let's read on. Verse 7, He set a graven image in the grove that he made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel will I put my name there. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they will observe to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. We need to take a deep breath. As bad as the Amorites were, as troubled as they were, and remember God cast them out for their wickedness, Manasseh did even worse. And he led the people of Israel to do even worse. This is becoming frightening. Talk about a crisis. Let's read on. Verse 10, And the Lord spake by His servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did. There it is again. Here was a king of Israel that did worse than the Amorites which before him and hath made Jeru- had Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. God said, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm not going to put up with it any longer. Things were moving in the right direction in the days of Hezekiah, but now under this reign of Manasseh, not only he, but the people over whom he reigns, they have moved in a direction, and the evil and the wickedness that has been wrought, I'm going to bring something upon Jerusalem. I'm going to bring something on Judah. 
that everybody that hears it, both ears are going to tingle. That's how serious it's going to be. Let's read on. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. We've all washed dishes. We know what this is like. You wash out the debris. You wash out that which was left over from the meal. And then you turn it upside down in the dish drainer. God says, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem clean. Nothing's going to be left. I'm going to take this place, and just like a person cleaning a dish, I'm going to remove all the filth. I'm going to remove all the particulars of it. Let's read on. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Why, God, are you doing this? Verse 15, Because they have done that which was evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. Notice that although Manasseh had an obligation in this, he says the people have erred. They chose to follow, and they were seduced by this. And so, verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll stop at that point. We've read enough to know what happened. God, in fact, revealed on this occasion that you and I know what was about to happen. He was going to turn the people over. He was going to let the Babylonians come and take them prisoner to a foreign land, and there they'd be for 70 years. But that was prompted by their evil, prompted by their wickedness, and prompted by the obligations in which they had failed. God gave them such promise and He was with them. But when they turned their back upon Him, when they chose to behave as they did, national judgment came upon them. They were taken from that land that God had given them, and God turned it over to somebody else, this time the Babylonians. Isn't it a reminder to us that we too have obligation? We too have much that should occupy our thinking. What one more time is the chief national concern? May I pause to say there's a lot of things that could occupy attention. There are foreign policy matters that are important. There are educational considerations that are serious. Immigration matters that no doubt are worthy of serious reflection. Everybody's concerned, I'm sure, to some degree with the economy, jobs, and other matters such as that, and those are the things of which we hear almost exclusively. And yet, according to the Old Testament, none of them is the major issue. That wasn't the major matter for the Amorites, and it wasn't the major matter for Israel either. What is the thing for which God judged them? Morality. Failure to uphold what was right and to live by the standard of ethical character that God had revealed. You see, He didn't allow them just to live however they wanted. You couldn't uphold particular matters of morality just because you felt like it. And yet in our land, where have we come? We mentioned earlier that the wickedness that the Amorites 
was known for was a wickedness that by and large included sexual character. You and I could read at length in the book of Leviticus that again, the thing for which God was casting them out primarily included their pursuit of things that was wrong sexually. Given to matters inclusive of heterosexual sin, but also homosexual sin, God said, I'm just not going to tolerate this. For instance, look at Leviticus chapter 20. As you think about again that land for which that people was cast out, We'll not read near all of that particular chapter, but at least this much might well be noted. In Leviticus number, chapter number 20, beginning in verse number 7, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my Sabbaths, and do them, I am the Lord which sanctify you. And then one by one he begins to list several behaviors that He commanded Israel to never engage in. Inclusive of the following, verse number 10, "...the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery, he shall surely be put to death. The man that lieth with his father's wife," verse 11, "...their blood shall be upon them." Verse 12, "...if a man lie with his daughter-in-law, they've committed abomination." Verse 13, "...if a man engages in homosexuality, They've committed abomination, their blood will be upon them. And on and on the list proceeds in the chapter. Did you notice sins of a sexual character? The people of that part of the world, they had begun to engage in activities inclusive of these. And God says, I have had enough. And in those days, of course, that had reached and appreciated the matters we noted earlier, God took them out of that land, gave it to Israel. But when we give thought to the children of Israel, did you notice what had they begun to do? Back to 2 Kings 21, verse 16, they shed innocent blood. They no longer had a proper appreciation for the sanctity of human life. May I say it again? They no longer had a proper appreciation for the sanctity of life as coming from God as being made in the image of God. And therefore, they shed innocent blood. The parallel to our day is evident, isn't it? On this following slide, you then will notice it with me. What have we done in our country, once regarded as perhaps the most noble of the Christian nations upon earth? And now, starting in January of 1973, we legalized the slaughter of babies. You don't have to have a reason. You don't have to offer any justification. You can kill babies. Almost unthinkable. May I suggest there is no blood more innocent than that. And yet we do it every day by the thousands in this country. Since that Supreme Court decision of January 1973, we have now put to death well over 62 million babies. And worldwide, the number is almost staggering, as if that one's not staggering enough. But the point is, if God rendered a verdict of judgment upon an ancient land because they shed innocent blood, what about us? May I offer 
some thoughts as we close the lesson. One of which is this. These behaviors that we've noted tonight, behaviors of wickedness, they touched morality in every regard. And so what about us as we give thought to what might we do about it? I would suggest the following. This slide puts it in these forms. We must maintain a great deal of fidelity to truth in our heart. That which is moral in our character, because we are influenced so much so easily by a nation who doesn't see things the way God does. We know that this nation, by and large, it seems, wishes to promote kinds of activities which God does not approve. That doesn't excuse us. It, of course, sets us to these thoughts. Let the Bible always be our guide for determining what's right, for setting in our character the thing that is appropriate. And as often as we think about the Word of God, we understand so easily that there are those who will insult it, as if, I cannot believe they will say that you will turn to a book that old with the thought that it will address the matters of the modern nation. But it does, it always has, and it always will. And though people may mock and revile, that's not going to deter us. That's not going to change our mind in the slightest. But not only might we have that degree of confidence, may we also ponder the following. Pray for our nation. Pray that we as a people, not just for our leaders, they have their responsibilities to be sure, but as a nation, that we as a citizenry will turn our attention to moral matters and strive to be people of rightness and people of honor and people given to what is earnest and honest. That also would include praying for those leaders. No wonder Paul urged Timothy to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. And so, if Timothy was urged to pray for men like Nero and other Roman leaders as wicked as they were, surely we would be wise to pray for our leaders and the leaders of other nations as well. That would include people like the President, people like the various members of the House and Senate, and people who occupy the other levels of government. But I might say, doesn't that immediately demand, let's try to put into office people with a regard for truth and people with a regard for morality and people with a regard for what will lead to things right in the sight of God. That means as we vote, let's do it with wisdom. Let's do it with the understanding we serve a greater master than any political party. And may we strive to vote for those who stand for what is at least right. If we do that, we will at least have a part to play in moving a direction in the way that we should. For after all, in the days of Manasseh and the days of the Amorites, we saw what happened then when the cup had become full, when wickedness had reached its highest point. Today, God has been so good to our land. Brother Gary led us earlier in that song tonight, God, has, God is so good, and He has been. We still, in many ways, are the finest in terms of the people of greatest blessings upon earth. 
let us exercise one of those bequeathed blessings that we might strive to elevate those who have a degree of appreciation for rightness. And so we do that, may God bless this country. And may we fill our hearts, may He fill our hearts with an attitude and desire to serve Him faithfully. This evening, as we reflect on a lesson like this one, the chief national crisis. The chief national crisis isn't any of these other things that most of the time is discussed. The chief national crisis is morality. Are we doing what's right? We can't expect our leaders to do it if we don't. We have to do what's right. And we have to stand for what's right. And we have to be committed to what's right. Are you and I, at all cost, never compromising it? We should be. We ought to be. God wants us to be because that's where genuine strength is found. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly, and perhaps you've never become a Christian, we could take care of that in a matter of moments. Or maybe I could say, the Lord can take care of it. We'll only assist. But if we could help you in that regard, you need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed in water for the remission of sins. If you have begun that walk with Christ and you've known faithfulness, but maybe you have begun to believe in what politicians and others have paraded and said time and time again, you notice they don't talk much about God. At least many of them don't. And quite often, the things touching this are very far down the list of matters in discussion. But you and I know it's the most important. What God thinks is what ought to be our line of thinking as well. And so tonight, if your life has become that which it ought not be, don't you want to come back to where you once stood? To that place in which God will stand with you and as you appreciate His strength, that you will not understand all the blessings and rewards and favors He promises. But if tonight that isn't the case of your life, why not come back to your first love? We'd be happy to pray for you. And as you make confession and repentance of those sins, He's promised to forgive them. This evening, in the pursuit of what's right, if we could be of encouragement to you, won't you let us do it while together we stand and while we sing?